Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem for, from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. coming through. There we go, just now. Still very much uh, introducing this uh, book of the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, if you were here last week, you know that uh, we're coming up on our second anniversary, beginning our third year uh, as Ascension Church of Phoenix. We usually begin the year with uh, referencing the Ascension and what that is about. And the book of Acts uh, starts with the Ascension of the Lord into the heavens. We saw that last week, and we saw what the vision of Ascension Church of Phoenix should be, should always be an apostolic church. We are a church that is based on and built on the, the apostles. And just by way of quick review, what we said then was the apostolic church is always focused on Jesus Christ. Uh, all of Christ. That's what the apostles themselves built the church on. It's Jesus. His 
his miraculous virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning death on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God, his uh, bodily resurrection from the dead, his glorious ascension into the heavens, and his future second coming, namely the things that we confess when we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, that is what our church is built on. It's a church about Jesus Christ. And secondly, it was a, it's a church that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, not man-made authority, not our, uh, what our intentions are, but actually the power of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that we also had one mission, one global mission to be witnesses to Jesus at the end of the earth, which is Phoenix, Arizona. We're here at the ends of the earth. What Jesus said was true. Uh, His message did spread through the apostles. And here we are trying to be an apostolic church here. We are witnesses of Christ. And so continuing in this introduction and the end of the first chapter here, we find the apostles waiting, waiting to experience the Spirit that Jesus has promised. So let's take a moment and pray and ask for God's help as we come to His Word. Father, we do thank You. Thanks be to God for this Word, Lord, and we trust it. We trust in You. We pray, Lord, that You would help our unbelief as we come to see what, you, what wonderful things You have shared in Your Word I pray that by your Spirit, you would show us, that you would grow us, you would convict us, you would challenge us, and also you would encourage us with your truth. And we ask that you would do your work in us, the work that your Spirit does. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. So it's hard to be faithful when you're waiting, when you're waiting on something. Uh, I just saw recently this, uh, this viral video where <laughs> these cruel parents, they have, I think the kids are twins, and they put candy in front of them, and they put the camera in front of the, uh, front of the kids and said, don't eat the candy. And then they like walk away, and they film the kids and see how long you know, it takes for the kids to disobey their commands. Uh, don't eat the candy. And so the, it's not very long. I'll, I'll give you the spoiler word. It's not very long. The kids look at each other. They kind of give each other permission and they just dive into the candy because it's hard to be faithful when you wait. And the apostles are waiting right now. Remember last week, Jesus said to them before he ascended into the heavens, he said, not many days from now, the spirit will come. And they don't know how many days that is. It turns out, historically, we know to be 10 days till Pentecost. So 40 days, Jesus was raised from the dead. And then 10 days, uh, he, he ascends into heaven. 10 days, the Spirit comes. And, but they're, they're in this place of waiting. And, and where we meet them is in the upper room where they, they come together and they're, they're doing the things that they know they need to do. They're being faithful. They're, they're electing a new leader, as we're going to talk about. They are uh, being united, they're praying together, and many uh, scholars call this the proto-New Testament church, because uh, it's not really the Old Testament anymore, right? But it's not necessarily the, the Spirit-filled Pentecost is the next chapter, and, and so the Spirit is going to come and breathe life on this church. But now the apostles are in this in-between place, they're waiting, and this is the things that they did while they waited, So here's what I want us to see from this passage this morning. While they waited, 
the, the apostles committed to being faithful while fully expecting God to be at work. While they waited, the apostles committed to being faithful while they fully expect God to be at work. It's that combination of faithfulness and holy expectation that we see in this passage. Faithfulness and expectation. And I can think of no greater vision for our church that we would be a faithfully and a faithful church and also a, a church that expects great things from God. That's what the apostles did here. In other words, they continued to do the normal faithful things that every church should do, but they did it with a great expectation that God would act, that God would move, that God would save people, that God would use their works, that God would bless their faithfulness. This is a picture that we see in all the great revivals of church history. Revivalism is a, is a complicated topic I won't get into today, but in the good revivals, we see a picture of this, the, where the church responds and, and God seems to work in a big way. One of my favorite revivals to uh, study is the revival that happened in Ulster, which is the northern Ireland, a few counties or whatever they call them in Ireland. In northern Ireland, this whole area is called Ulster. And in 1859, there was a great revival that was started there. And I love that revival. It's a, it's a great one to study. It's also a Presbyterian revival, uh, which some people think are opposites, right? Presbyterians can't revive, but that's not true historically, all right? This is one of the big, this is the biggest, I think, European revival since the Great Awakening in the 1700s. And let me tell you just the story uh, briefly, but I'll do it in reverse. Let me show you what the results of the revival were and then go back to its source or its beginning. In the end, in one year, 1859, there was an estimated 100,000 people, this is what historians do after the fact, who gave their life to Christ, became Christians in that region of Northern Ireland. And then it, it spread over into the rest of Europe. And when you think about all the people in Wales and in Scotland, and then uh, later in Great Britain, who then were affected by this, and there was another revival going over here in the United States at the same time, but the European, there was a million people or more that were affected by this revival. That's what happened in the late 1850s. But how did it spread? Well, if you go a step further back in time, closer to the beginning, you see that at the time, there were over 100 prayer meetings in Ulster. These were not official church services on Sunday. They were uh, prayer meetings outside of the gathering of the church that people started, and that people were coming together, and they were praying for the outpouring of the Spirit of God on their country. Well, how did those prayer meetings start? Well, if you trace it back, there really was one church where, uh, that hosted several prayer meetings that began um, the, you know, the movement, so to speak, of these prayer movements. One church in Ulster whose pastor was named Reverend Hamilton Moore. You've never heard of him. He was a very normal pastor. In fact, one later historian who wrote about Hamilton Moore said this about him. This was his description. A plain, honest Faithful, and I love this, and laborious Presbyterian. 
minister, who used, who used wisely and powerfully God's own means, not other means, for effecting reformation. Plain, normal, laborious Presbyterian, right? That's life goals for me, it's just to get that description in history. Well, how did this pastor lead such effective prayer meetings? Was it his vision? Was it his strategy? Was it up to him? Did he create some kind of huge plan that then, you know, was multiplied into great effectiveness? No, at first it had nothing to do with the pastor. The prayer meeting started with four young men who got together in a schoolhouse to pray. How did those four men get together? Well, one of the men's names was James McQuilkin, and he worked at a linen warehouse, and he became a Christian, and he wanted to pray for his church and for the world. And so he got together with three of his friends. Well, how did James McQuilkin become a Christian? It was through the influence of one lady in 1856 whose name was Mrs. Colville. And she came to, the re- to that region of Ireland. She wasn't from there. She came because, this is a direct quote, she had time and money to spend for God. And the funny thing is, she was discouraged. She thought that what she did in Ireland was a complete waste of time. She was very discouraged, but she wanted to, she had, she wanted to be faithful, and she also wanted to see God work, and so she did so. She moved to this area, and she started this ministry, whatever it was, and a couple of women came to faith, and this random linen warehouse worker named James McQuilkin who then got together with his friends, who then started a prayer meeting, who then spread the prayer meetings, and a hundred of them happened, and then a revival broke out over in Ulster, Ireland. At each stage, in other words, there was nothing more on the surface other than ordinary faithfulness. Nothing, nothing extraordinary, just people doing faithful things. But with that, ordinary faithfulness, there was a belief, there was a trust, there was an expectation that God might use that faithfulness, would work through it. Faithful expectation. That's where we meet the apostles. What are the marks of this kind of faithful expectation? The first one I want us to see is this, the necessity of leadership. Now really, that's what this chapter is about in terms of the content of what they're doing right now. The apostles are electing a new leader, a new one of the 12 to replace Judas. So we pick it up in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So they go... After Jesus ascends into heaven, they go a Sabbath journey. That means the amount of distance they can go on the Sabbath. They're still following the law. They can go a kilometer. So they go two-thirds of a mile, and they go to the upper room, or an upper room. Many think, I think, it probably was the upper room, the place where Jesus served the Last Supper. We know that that was a great room, a big room. That's what the Bible says, and so it could house a lot of people. And, you know, it says here, the upper room. So perhaps this is where they went because Jesus in that upper room said that's where he told them to wait for the Spirit. 
So maybe they were going back to the source. But anyway, they go here and they're, they're together with all of these women and others. There's women here. There's, who are these women? Uh, probably the four Marys. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Clopas, Mary of Bethany, Martha, Susanna, Joanna. These are the, the women that Luke talks about in his gospel. Remember, he wrote a gospel first. Now he writes the book of Acts. Together with a hundred other people that are unnamed or so, and 11 apostles, 11 leaders. And here they are listed for us. The Acts of the Apostles. We're going to be talking about the Acts of these men, these 11 apostles. Now, let me take this opportunity to clear up some confusion from last week, because I had a lot of people ask me about the bulletin last week, because last week we had uh, Acts of the Apostles, and there was Jude pictured on there. Um, And this week it's Peter. So what we're doing is we're just showing just some, some drawings of the 12 apostles. That's what we're going to be doing. But some people had some questions about that because they thought that we were studying the book of Jude and Acts of the Apostles. So sorry about that. There was also another question, though, that was like, was Jude an apostle? Uh, I don't remember Jude being an apostle. Jude doesn't seem to be listed here. He is. His name is Judas, the son of James, because he also went by Jude. And here's where some of the confusion comes in. It's hard to name the apostles because many of them had multiple names. We've got two Simons. We've got two Jameses. We've got two Judases. We've got Judas, the son of Alphaeus, who also goes by Jude and inexplicably sometimes goes by Thaddeus in the Scripture. Maybe his friends called him Thad, too. I don't know. Like, just to make it even more... But that's what we're doing. We're going through the 12 apostles. So, I anticipate us being 24 weeks in this series. So, we'll go through the apostles twice. You've got to collect them all, right? <laughs> But here they are listed, the 11 that are about to become the 12. The, they're listed here probably by Luke in order of importance to the, to the early church. We've got Jesus' inner circle, Peter, John, and James. And he lists the others. And all of these men are going to go out into different regions, and the church is going to spread. But there's a problem. There's only 11. Judas has betrayed Jesus. And so he is no longer listed with the 11. And so Peter picks up this problem and he says in verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then he tells us about his graphic death. Actually, there's two accounts of, Jesus, of Judas's death in the scriptures. Matthew 27 is the other one, and sometimes people use that as an example of how the Bible contradicts itself. There's some details listed in Matthew 27 that are not listed here, and vice versa. But the two accounts should be read together. If you have questions about that, we could talk about it afterwards. But if you put the two passages together, Judas hung himself, his body swelled up. That's what I take to mean here, the, that he fell headlong. Uh, the alternate reading there is that he, his body swelled up split open and was spilled, his guts were spilled, into the field. And the Bible says that the field was bought by the religious leaders. When Judas gave back his, his silver that he had taken in order to betray Jesus, and they used that money to buy this field, which was once called Potter's Field, and now is called 
field of blood, Akodema, the field of blood. And there's two traditions of why it's called the field of blood that the Scripture talks about. Some called it the field of blood because it was bought with blood money, the money that was used to kill Jesus. And others called it that because this is where, as Acts tells us here, Judas's blood was spilled. Peter stands up and he says, he quotes Scripture and he says, we need a twelfth. Because the twelve of Jesus are a thing. This is a significant number. This is the apostolic calling. And they put together, put forth two names. Joseph, who also has two other names. Maybe that's why God chose Matthias. You know, it's like these names are getting out of hand here. Joseph, who's also called Brasabas, which is also called Justice, and Matthias. And Matthias is chosen. We know very little about these men. Matthias became later according to a later tradition, a missionary to Ethiopia. But it brings up the question of what are these leaders? Who, what makes an apostle? What makes one one of the twelve? And we see their criteria, what, what they list here in verse 21. So one of the men who had a, so who's going to fulfill his office? One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. The apostles, or the twelve, have to be chosen by God, in other words. They did this process so they could reveal who God had chosen. They needed to fulfill the office of being a witness to the resurrection. That's going to be their marching orders. We talked about it last week. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Well, they needed to witness the resurrection. And thirdly, they needed to be with Jesus from the baptism of John until the ascension. That's what they said, that we need to elect someone who was with us this whole time so they could be someone who was with Jesus this whole time. And so that answers our question then, perhaps if you have a question about who the apostle Paul was. Paul was an apostle, but he was not with Jesus from the time of baptism until Jesus ascended. And so he is not one of the twelve, but he is still an apostle because he was called by God and chosen by God, and he was a witness to the resurrection. Jesus appeared to him, we're going to talk about it in just a few chapters, and showed him himself and gave him his mission to be a witness. He was an apostle, as he later says, one untimely born. An apostle, but not one of the twelve. The point of this is for our purposes this morning, the necessity of this leadership. As, as they were waiting, they faithfully enter into this process using the Scriptures, knowing that God had called them to be faithful. They elect new leaders. And you can't get past the importance of this leadership for the early church. The second thing that they did while they waited is the importance of unity. The importance of unity. You can see it in verse 14. As they get together, this proto-church, what are they doing? All these with one accord. With one accord. A beautiful phrase. With one mind. All together. And this becomes a theme in the book of Acts. Being together as the church. 
The unity of the church, so important. In Acts 15, there's going to be something called the Jerusalem Council where they get together and they make sure that we're united on the truth. They're deciding what they're being united in. And what's so remarkable about this is these were the same men who were vying to be leaders in the kingdom. Remember, they argued together on the way. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Remember, they they fought about who would be on his left and who would be on his right. And now after the ascension, they understand their assignment. It's actually to be together. And this is so important for the spread of the gospel and for what the church becomes. True unity is what God uses to spread his kingdom. I say true unity because, of course, there is a kind of false unity where we emphasize unity to the, at the expense of the necessary beliefs. Or we say it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as we are together. And that is the mistake of some churches, some church traditions. But of course, these apostles were united together in their belief in Jesus. They had a true unity. We saw it last week. They, they believed They all believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They all witnessed his resurrection. They all believed that he was to be a witness, to witness him to the ends of the earth. But these were different men, and they had different callings, and the church is going to spread into Africa, into Asia, to Europe, eventually over into the United States. And the the body of Christ is going to be very diverse and very spread out and very beautiful. And this is the way that God moves in the world. It is always with a variety of people, a variety of perspectives, with one accord. I mentioned earlier the Ulster Revival. I'm proud. It's a Presbyterian revival, but, you know, it didn't stay that way. It didn't stay that way. All kinds of people, all kinds of traditions. When God moves, He moves in unity with His people. And so He's always at work outside of our circles, outside of our bubbles, outside of our own understandings, but still when we're focused on Christ. The necessity of leadership, the importance of unity. Third, what are they doing? The regularity of worship. How were they faithful during this time of waiting? They worshiped together. All these with one accord, verse 14, were devoting themselves to prayer. Actually, what it says there is they were devoting themselves, they were with persistence devoting themselves to the prayer. There's a definite article there. The prayer. What this means is that within 10 days of Jesus' ascension, the church had a liturgy. It had a prayer. It had a regular rhythm of worship. The prayer was something that they came and did together. It was a definite thing. And they devoted themselves to it. Now I'm keeping some of my powder dry because in the next chapter, the amazing Acts chapter 2, he says, they were devoting themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching. They had all things in common and With glad and generous hearts, they were serving one another. This is the picture of the church we're going to see as the Holy Spirit comes. But even before Pentecost, there was a sense that this regularity in worship 
was important. What does faithfulness mean? It means this ordinary worship, this gathering together to be with the people of God. Why it's so important that we make this, what we're doing, a priority. Why it's so important for us to commit to a community group is because these are opportunities for us to be together and devoted in prayer, the worship of God. And we may not know what God's calling us to, but He's definitely calling us to regular worship because that's what the people of God have done from the very beginning. And then fourth and finally, the guidance of Scripture. So interesting that Peter, when he stands up to say, we need to do something about this place that Judas, this hole that Judas has left, the way he invokes the Scripture. Very significant. This is the first time in the New Testament outside of Christ's own teaching where his followers have made use of the Old Testament and brought it into the New and said, what we need to do is based on what God has already written. So significant. He says, in this time of waiting, Peter thinks of two Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And he says, this is what God is calling us to do. He uses the Scripture, in other words, to guide the present moment. Why does he use these two Psalms? Well, when he thinks about Judas, he sees an enemy of God, and there's many Psalms about the enemies of God, but he thinks of Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 because in those Psalms, I think he's grabbing those because in those Psalms, the enemies of God are what could be called the wicked without cause. That's a phrase from Psalm 69, I think. The wicked without cause. That is, the wicked person who is senselessly wicked, who is wicked with, a, with an obvious alternative to righteousness. What, a better, what better description of Judas could we have, right? He was with the Lord of glory. He spent time with Jesus, and yet he was an enemy of God. And so Peter thinks of these psalms, and he quotes them, and he says, Psalm 69, May his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it. This is the psalm where God deals with his enemies, where, where David says, Zeal, for your house has consumed me. But there's, there's those who are outside, who, outside the camp who have set up their own camp against you, and may their camp become a desolation and this is what he says has happened to Judas. That's why we're getting these descriptions of the field of blood. This field that was bought with Judas' money has now become this field of blood, this place, this desolate camp, this reminder of what happens to the enemies of God. So what should we do about it? Well, he thinks of Psalm 109, another psalm about the wicked without cause. And he says, one of the things that the psalmist says there is, let another take his office. Take down the one who has a position of influence and give that office to someone else, Lord. It's a prayer. And so Peter says, we should do this. And what I'm pointing out here is not so much the content of what they did. We talked about that. They elected this new um, leader. But to say how self-consciously scriptural the apostles were. They saw themselves as the continuance of God's people. Even the idea that we needed 12. Of course, they needed 12 because there were 12 tribes of Israel and they were the ones who were to sit in judgment of Israel as apostles of the church. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. He said this, 
You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They knew that the story continued and that they were part of the twelve and the people of God continued and they were the new sons of Jacob, the new sons of Israel that God was calling. Even the way they chose Matthias, which is not repeated anywhere else in the New Testament, this casting of lots has an Old Testament feel to it, right? The casting of the lots goes out, but it's every decision is from the hand of the Lord, the proverb says. This was the way that in the Old Testament they chose things. And so they self-consciously saw themselves as continuing this story. Faithful waiting. The apostles commit themselves to faithfulness while they wait. What better vision for a church is faithful waiting with expectation that God will work. And we are called to the same. We are called to this same vision. Faithfulness with an expectation that God will act. Let me ask you this as we close. A couple of questions. Where is faithfulness lacking for you? Where is faithfulness lacking? The things that the apostles are doing are simple. The things that, that, that were called to throughout the Scripture, this being together, the praying Devoting ourselves to the prayer, to the worship of God, faithfulness, simple faithfulness, following our leaders, our apostolic leaders, and knowing what it is that the Lord has taught us. Being in unity with other believers, these are the things that God calls us to. The regular worship of God, looking to the scriptures for guidance for our own lives. Leading those that he's called us to serve, our families, our neighbors, What has God called us to do? We must never leave the basics behind. Faithfulness. Where is faithfulness lacking? Let me ask you another question, particularly those maybe who are older, maybe who are a little more put together and you've lived a faithful Christian life. But to all of us, do you live expecting that God's going to work? Do you live expecting that He will work? Do you expect Him to meet you in worship? Do you expect Him to give you wisdom for your life? Do you expect Him to guide you through the Scriptures? Do you expect that your children will grow up the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that they'll be godly men and women? Do you expect Him to work through you being a witness to His resurrection, to be one who gives a faithful account of the work that God has done in you. As you think about someone, do you think, well, they'll never become a Christian. My neighbor will never understand what I go through. Do do you think that God will work? Do we expect this church to continue in effectiveness, in faithfulness, in peace? Do we expect to, to grow? Do we expect to meet God? Do we expect to overcome sin? Do we expect God to work? Of course, as we said last week, God may not do what we expect. That's not the point. I'm not here to say, name it and claim it. Name your expectation and then claim it and then God will have to do it. We saw last week, the Spirit of God is the power of the church. It's not 
our directing the Spirit. The Spirit is the wind. It doesn't, it's not directable. It's God's work. He is not obligated, but He does work. He does change people. He does give gifts. He does move people. He does invite you to repent and believe in His name. He does still move through His church, through the preaching of the Word, through the worship of His people, through the leaders that He puts in place. He still moves. It is the same God that they worship here is the God that we worship. It's the same Father who rose Jesus from the dead, who is our Father. It's the same Father who says, this is my beloved Son, is the one who says to us, you are my beloved Son. You are my beloved daughter. It's the same Spirit, the Spirit that's coming at Pentecost next week that gives power to the church is the same Spirit that empowers our worship. It's the same Spirit that meets us at the table. It's the same Spirit that convicts our hearts. And Jesus, the one who ascended into heaven, it's the same Christ who sat at the right hand of the Father, continues to sit in authority over this world. We still worship the risen Christ. He still is at work, as we saw last week. This is His church. It's not the work of Jesus, the first, the book of Luke, and then Jesus dies, and now this is the work of the church. No, this is the work of the ascended Christ. This is the same God. Our calling is the same. Our life is the same. It's found up, it's bound up in this story of the Acts of the Apostles. And God does still move. He uses faithfulness. We must never forget, must never leave our faithfulness meeting together, praying together, worshiping Him, going into the Scriptures for our very life. We must never leave behind faithfulness, but do we expect that he can and will work using those ordinary means. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to look at your word and see your church being born, I pray that you would give us not just the ability, but the desire to be an apostolic witness of the resurrection here at 18th Street in Osborne, in the neighborhoods where you've called us to live, wherever it is that we work and live and play, that you would give us this heartbeat, that we are your witnesses, and that you are at work. Help us to not leave behind either faithfulness or the joyful expectation that you will work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.